We'll read verses 14 through 21, but we'll be focusing in on verses 17 through 19. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, would you now accomplish what Paul prayed for? Would you help us to comprehend your love, that we might know the height, depth, breadth, and length, and that you then might be honored through your church forever and ever. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, as we look at these verses, we're going to see that God wants us to sink our roots into his love and in his church for his eternal glory. You may remember that Jesus told his disciples, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, our words reveal what's going on inside of us. And you may remember that at the end of the last week, we were talking about this, and I used the illustration of a water bottle, and I shook the water bottle, and I asked, why did water come out? And we said it's because water was inside it. If in the water bottle had been nothing, nothing would have come out. Or if there had been coffee in the bottle when we shook it, coffee would have come out. This is an important reality to remember, because when we consider prayer, what are the words that come out of our mouth when we pray. You know, the words that we pray are revealing what is important to us. You know, sadly, too often for me, they can be words of routine, words that I've prayed before and I'm just kind of saying again. Or too often, my prayers can just focus on the momentary needs in my life. Now, it's not wrong to pray about personal concerns. God tells us to lay our anxieties upon Him. Yet that the fact that our prayers are often only about our own momentary problems, reveals that we have little concern for others and for God's glory. Like a thermometer, our prayers show the warmth or coldness of our love towards God. Yet what is the 98.6, you might say, the normal temperature that our prayers should have? In other words, what should we be praying for? To what kind of God are we praying well, this morning in these verses, we're reminded that we're praying to the amazing God of love and that we should be praying that we might know that love more and more so that God might be glorified. If you have a bulletin on the back, you should see an outline that we first in verses 17, the end of it to the beginning of 18, we want to know God's love through his people. Then in the middle of 18 to the beginning of 19, we want to know God's immeasurable love through His Son. And then in the end of 19, we want to know God's fullness through Christ. But look again at the end of verse 17 through the beginning of verse 19. That you, 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Or more simply, Paul is praying that we would comprehend God's love in Christ. Yet before he gets to them knowing Christ's love, he adds some important phrases. It all begins with calling them to be rooted and grounded in love. Paul's using here two different metaphors, one from horticulture and then one from architecture that refer to stability to what goes on beneath. Rooted is that horticultural analogy discussing how a plant finds strength and nourishments through its roots. I'm always amazed here in North Texas when we get windstorms and how strong the wind can be. And it's like I forget that we just had one the week before. But when the winds come in, you see the leaves getting blown about, things on your porch that aren't tied down getting shoved around, trash blowing, and you see the trees swaying and branches sometimes falling, and yet, as soon as the wind stops, trees just go back to normal. They're rooted down deep, and their roots give them stability so that they stand. You know, grounded, to our modern ears, that might sound like an electrical term. You need to have it grounded. But actually, it's coming from architecture it is the structure is it built on a firm foundation so when the storms of life come it's not shaken but it stands firm and what here is paul saying is the soil of the tree's roots what's the bedrock of the building's foundation it's god's love that's what we must be rooted and grounded in we must sink our roots into god's love it's interesting because our society tells us to find our strength in ourselves. To look in you. You have all the strength that you need. You can be anything you want. Yet we're <coughs> finite. We're fickle. We're frail. God alone is infinite, immovable, immortal. His love endures forever. So if we sink our roots into God's love, we can then flourish and know more of His love. Yet notice how, or maybe better, with whom we learn of this love. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend that love of Christ with all the saints. You know, we do learn of God's love ourselves, but we don't learn it to the fullest by ourselves. To be concrete... You could become a monk and go live by yourself and be a hermit. And you could come to know many things about God's love. Yet the bandwidth for your understanding the depth and breadth of God's love will be much smaller than if you relate and live with, involved with, other believers. Because we talk about God's revelation to the world. We talk about His general revelation that He's given us in the world that the nature declare the heavens declare the glory of god we talk about his special revelation in his word and yet we often don't talk enough about his relational revelation that god has chosen to reveal himself through his people and paul's not the only one to say this stephanie read it for us earlier in first john in first john this section all dealing about how we should love one another because god is love and then in the middle of those verses he says something that seems completely unrelated. In the middle of those verses, he says, no one has ever seen God. 
loves kissing is kind of odd. He's talking about God's love, God's love for us, how we should then love one another. And then he mentions no one has ever seen God. Well, what is he doing? Why does he mention this? Well, John is also the writer of the Gospel of John. And he's making a connection. Because John 1.18 said, no one has ever seen God. So both begin the same. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. And that ends, the only God who is at the Father's side, he, being Jesus, has made him known. So God is invisible, but God chose through his Son to reveal to us what he's like. Well, then John uses that same beginning. No one has ever seen God, but seen God. But in 1 John 4.12, he follows it by talking about the nature of our love. And he's saying that God has chosen to reveal himself not only through his son, but also through his church. Our loving actions show the invisible God. Now this would be too amazing a statement to make if God did not reveal it in his word. Yet God can be seen through the loving actions of his people. More than that, it says that God's love is perfected in us. And the word for perfected is like reaching your goal, reaching your target. You know, the goal of God's love is not merely for you to go, I don't have to go to hell. I got a clean conscience. Now, those are wonderful things that we should praise God for. But God's goal for his love in your life is more than that. It is for then for you to turn from a love sponge into a love mirror. Not only is the love just so I can receive and soak it all in, it's so that I can have that love and reflect it back to the people around me. That's when God's love has reached its goal in your life or in our life as a church, when we hear and know God's love and reflect it to others. Thus, though God is invisible, He's made Himself known in Christ and in Christ's body, His church, through our loving acts. But let's consider three concrete ways that we can comprehend God's love through all the saints. Because this can seem rather amorphous. How do we see God? Let me mention three ways. Welcoming love, caring love, and disciplining love. First, welcoming love. In Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, we see two responses to sinners. The father so delights that his prodigal son returns that what does he do? He runs to meet him. He wants to embrace him. He welcomes him back. But yet, what is the other response? It's the response of the elder brother who is angry that his brother has returned and does not want to extend love, but wants to say, no, he is not welcome here. Well, when we welcome the broken, the outcast, the rebel, we're revealing God's love to such like them and like us. Yet when we, whether it's through our attitudes, our actions, our words, when we convey that we don't want them, whoever them are, here, then we are hiding God's love. Thus, who and how we welcome either reveals or conceals God's welcoming love. Second, in the, in the church and through the church, we can see God's caring love. You know, the Psalms tell us that God keeps our tears in a bottle, that he is near to the brokenhearted, that God finds joy in his children's joy. So when we rejoice with those who rejoice, 
And we weep with those who weep. We are reflecting God's love to those around us. Thus, God's design for our church involvement is not merely to attend an event. It's not merely just to be faithful to give. Rather, God's goal is for us to engage in relationships with others in this body by loving and caring for them so that they can come to comprehend with all the saints the love of God in Christ. Thus we have to ask, are our commitments and relationships with one another revealing this? Do we care for one another in our midst? We might look around and go, but these people aren't really like me. You know, I don't care about those things they're talking about. Those are boring. Or, you know, they're older than me, or they're younger than me, or they just are different. Yet if we're joined to Christ, we should be tangibly, practically loving and caring one another so that we can reveal God's caring love. Well, third, we reveal God's disciplining love when we don't allow unrepentant sin to remain. You know, many... Christians today want to embrace everyone. They want to be so-called welcoming, like we said we should be, but they want to welcome and not call people to turn from their sin. Then other Christians, more pharisaical, say, well, you're only welcome in here if you first clean up your life, if you live the life like we think you should. And yet God tells us to avoid both distortions. We're both to welcome and then to call them to turn and follow. As Jesus said, He both says, I do not condemn you, and go and sin no more. God loves us so much that he welcomes, and then he won't let us stay in our sin. Thus Hebrews 12 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. It's his love that disciplines us. Thus throughout the New Testament, whether it's Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Timothy 1 or 5, there are these commands that if there is someone in our midst who professes to be a believer, and yet they're living in unrepentant sin, the loving thing to do is call them out on it. To call them to live a life that honors God. And let me be clear, we're talking about unrepentance, and none of us, this side of glory, will be perfect. So we're not going around condemning each other for every action, but we're coming along to help, to restore people to Christ in obedience, not to punish them because of sin. Thus, whether it be welcoming love or caring love or disciplining love or a hundred other manifestations of God's love, we come to comprehend God's love with and through all the saints. And yet, sadly, I know for many, this seems the exact opposite of reality. They've come to know and enjoy God's love And the church has almost driven them from God. Rather than love, when they've gone to church, all they found is clicks, backbiting, gossip, manipulation. And they think, look, the last place I ever am going to go to learn of God's love is the church. And sadly, we have to recognize that's the experience of many today. And we should grieve that one of the very means God has given us to know his love has become so distorted that people see the opposite of God's love. And yet we must not give up on the church, for it is that which Christ died for. You know, it's also true that in many homes, children have been abused. And yet what do we normally do with those children? We then don't just say, well, 
No longer are you going to have any parents. We take them and we try to find for them loving, caring homes. In the same way, yes, many people have been burnt, hurt, hurt, burnt, but those together, hurt and burnt by the church. But we don't then become spiritual orphans. We should look to place them in God-honoring churches because there they will come to know God's love in a greater way than they ever can on their own. And so many of you, through military, through other things, are going to have to one day move and go somewhere else. God's plan for you to know him in a deeper way will be to find a church where there you can love and care for those people and you can manifest God's love to them and them to you. And God doesn't want us just to know a fragment of his love, but he wants us to know the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. And we see that in the next section, in the middle of verse 18 to 19, knowing God's immeasurable love through his son. And we're a little bit of an older group here today, not as many children, but some of you have not yet learned, but most of you have learned in your math classes how to find the volume or surface area of a three-dimensional shape. And you have to know the length, the width, and the height. Three different dimensions. But Paul adds, and the depth. Well, wait, isn't that already mentioned? You know, depth is a perspective of looking down. And it's a mind-boggling idea. How can we have four dimensions? And of course, when there's something that doesn't fit, interpreters, commentaries, pastors, they come up with all types of analogies and hidden meanings in what's being said here. Matthew Henry writes, The breadth shows its extent to all nations and rank. The lengths that it continues from everlasting to everlasting. The depth, it's saving those who are sunk into the depths of sin and misery. The height, it's raising them up to heavenly happiness and glory. Leslie Milton commenting on this and connects it with Romans 8. Whether you go forward or backward, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. John Stott notes that ancient commentators saw these dimensions illustrated on the cross. Its upright poles reached down into the earth and pointed up to heaven, while its crossbars carried the arms of Jesus, stretched out to invite and welcome the whole world. Now all of those have some insights and some very heart-stirring words, but I think it's actually much more simple. I think that Paul is doing what my mom did to me when I was a child. She wanted me to know her love, so she would say, I love you all the way up to heaven and all the way back. She was trying to say, my love is so great, there's really no dimensional idea that can capture it. You know, where does heaven begin and where? You can't. So this idea that's beyond a finite grasp. And that's what Paul's trying to say. And he has something more than a mother's love he's trying to convey. He's saying God's love, there's no term, there's no like way we can box it up and understand, okay, it's this length by this length. No, it's beyond our calculations. It's got breadth, length, height, and depth. And this is because the love of Christ is not mere sentiment. Again, 1 John 4 helps us because it tells us in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love allowed His one and only Son to be sent on this earth to live, to suffer, to die and rise again. 
so that we might be forgiven, that he might redeem us and this world. You know, God had no need. There was no justice that had to be met by him in order to do that. But in his love, he wanted to save us. His pure, amazing love and grace led him to send his son to die and that God the Son would willingly give his life. And so we sing, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? And this love is so great that Paul says it surpasses knowledge. Well, how can you know something that surpasses knowledge? Is that like lifting an unliftable weight? No, this is what's called a paradox. Words that appear to be contradictory, but in fact are expressing a truth. And you may have heard some of these paradoxes. Less is more. If I know one thing, it's that I know nothing. Or, I can resist anything but temptation. Those are all paradoxes. Again, something that appears contradictory, but when you think about them, you go, oh, that's actually conveying something that is true. In this case, God's love does surpass the ability of a finite human mind to ever fully grasp. Yet though we don't know it exhaustively, we can know it truly and accurately. You know, a helpful illustration I heard was of a child with their parent. You know, many a young child in the arms of their parent feels safe and secure. And when a stranger comes and takes the child to hold it, they cry. So they know, I want to be in the arms of the parent that loves me. But how much does that infant really know of their parent's love? I mean, very little. As that infant grows into a child, they'll know more of it. And then we know, as adults, you actually come to appreciate and know your parents' love more when you become a parent, when you go through all those things. And so in every step in that journey, the person knew the love of their parents, but they were growing in a greater way through time. And in a much greater way, we can know, we can explain, we can rejoice in God's love, but we're rejoicing in the shallow end of a fathomless depth. Thus, the comprehension Paul desires us to have is not just a mental ability to explain it. You were told in James 2 that the demons believe in God. And I would argue that the demons could but explain better than most of us, better than me, what God's love means. But they don't comprehend it. They don't delight in it. They know about God's love. They don't know God's love. And there are many university professors who have their doctorates in the New Testament and they could explain in great detail what the New Testament tells us of Christ's sacrifice and what God did to love us. And they don't believe one word of it. They know about God's love, but they don't know God's love. So how is it that Paul wants them and us to comprehend Christ's love? Well, it's here that Christians often make a mistake. And that is that they realize that God wants more than just to know in our heads about it. And so they wrongly conclude that head knowledge doesn't matter. Yet while God desires more than just head knowledge, he doesn't desire less than head knowledge. God wants us to have a heartfelt, deep knowledge that comes through the mind. If you could imagine someone shooting a bow and arrow and they're aiming for a target, you know, here, the target of God's love being known is in our heart. But that arrow to hit that target, he sends it through our minds. 
we are transformed by the renewal of our mind. For God to let us know His love to be spread abroad in our hearts, He doesn't go around the mind to just give us emotions or circumstances or events. He goes through our heads. And this is why a saint, with years of experience on their knees, living with God's people, being in God's Word, having gone through the travails of life, often has a much greater knowledge of God's love than anyone with degrees on their wall. Because it's not how much you understand merely with your head, it's how much God has worked through your head into your heart. So have you tasted and seen that God is good? Do you long for, pray for, and hope to have the deeper knowledge of God and His love? You know, may prayers like this fill our lips for ourselves and for our loved ones. May we long to know God in a deeper and deeper way. And thus Paul transitions to knowing God's fullness through Christ. This is the end of verse 19. It is such a deep love for Christ. See, such a deep knowledge of Him that he says that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. Now the point is not that we'll become divine but rather we will be filled with the Divine One. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul rejoices in Jesus' coming and fully representing God. This Colossians 1.19 says, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Later in Colossians 2.9, For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And not only did Jesus reveal God, He is God. This God the Father desired that he would display himself through his Son, Jesus. And now, bring those ideas here. Consider the flow of Paul's logic in Ephesians 3, this prayer. In verse 17, he talked about Christ dwelling in their hearts by faith, and now about their knowledge of the love of Christ growing in them. If this is happening, they are coming to have a fuller appreciation for Jesus, who is the fullness of God. And this really ties into a common heresy then, and that still exists today. And that is, look, coming to faith in Jesus is great, but you need a little bit more, we're told. You want the full life? Well, then you need a second blessing of the Spirit. You need to take a psychedelic trip on drugs or see visions. You need to be able to articulate this brand of theology. Yet, the truth is, you can't be any more full if you have the divine fullness in you by faith. Jesus is the fullness of God, so you don't need Jesus plus anything else. We don't need a second blessing, but we need a deeper appreciation and realization for the fullness we already have in Christ. You don't need to connect to God in some mystical experience you don't need a vision. You don't need more stuff or different relationships. We need to go deeper into the most fulfilling thing in the universe, Christ himself. And the problem in Ephesus and in Colossae and around the world throughout time was summarized by Johnny Lee years ago singing, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. You know, friends, your desire to be loved and fully accepted is not a bad desire. 
However, it's a desire that can ruin and rule your life if you don't find that love in Christ. If your greatest love, your greatest hope is being loved by another human, your enjoyment will eventually end. The love of other humans is extremely wonderful, but it alone will not be happily ever after. You know, C.S. Lewis writes about this. He points out that not only will these loves not last, but in fact, most of our common loves and dreams, they were given to us to point to something deeper. Lewis writes, most people, if they really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking now of what might be called ordinary or unsuccessful marriages, or vacations or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at, in that that first moment of longing, which just fades away, in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a very good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Yet we give ourselves to these things thinking, if I can just get this, then life will finally be what it's all about. This is where meaning is going to be. If I can just be loved in this way, or love this thing, and then it doesn't happen. And then Lewis and others point out the three wrong responses we can have due to that. First, we can just wrongly assume the problem is, oh, well, I just chose the wrong thing. I thought life would be found in being an athlete, but that didn't work out by fifth grade. So I'm going to choose a relationship. Life's going to be found there. And then, well, yes, that's great, but okay, my career, if I can get my career, well, that's not, if I can only build up for a great retirement. And we switch from object to object thinking we've just picked the wrong thing. And if we can just get this other thing, or just get it a little bit more, then we'll finally have it all. And yet that will never work. But the second wrong conclusion we can draw from not being fulfilled in something or someone of this earth is that we're the problem. We blame ourselves. We look around and go, look, I see their post. Their life is perfect. Their family is wonderful. They got the job. They got the everything that's right. And here I am. It's me. I'm the problem. And yet, rather than hitting our own life, we should realize the veneer of reality that comes through social media. And that your life may very well be the envy of others. You know, I once had a friend tell me he grew up always envious of his best friend because at their house they always had the four-wheelers, they always had the boats, they always had everything. And he just, his family, boring. And then he grew up. And he later went and saw that friend and they were talking and his friend said, you know, I was always envious of your family. He was like, what? He's like, well, yeah, we had the four wheelers, we had the boats, we had everything. But you know, I never had a good coat, I never had a good meal. My parents were always living for all this stuff and the most basic things they didn't provide for me. And so we can always be envious thinking, oh, they got it all. They have what I want. And yet it's not, the problem is not the things, the problem is not us. It's that the things in us are not meant to find happiness in and of themselves. It's kind of interesting. If you ever look at the studies, it's kind of odd 
that the highest use of drug rates are in the richest and the poorest in our world. You know, the kids of the rich think, well, I have it all. Is this it? And so they're looking for a little bit more. Those who are the poorest think, well, I don't have it. I need to just escape this misery. And yet both are looking to the wrong place. This third, we can wrongly think the solution is, look, well, it's not the things. It's not me. So look, I'm just going to give up. You know, you just got to make it through life. Just kind of, got to bear it. Never going to find real joy. That's just the way life is. And in some ways, this is the most mature response. It's actually looking at this world and realizing it's not going to provide everything that I want. However, it can also be the deadliest, for it deadens in us the desires for greatness that God himself put in us. Lewis again writes, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo, or a mirage. So in other words, yes, find joy in your romantic relationships or just your friendships. Enjoy your vacations, your hobby, your possessions. Yet don't think that any love in this world will be ultimately satisfying. They are all, as Lewis says, echoes, copies of the true, ultimate, and lasting pleasure that we were meant to find in God and in His love. This last summer, Sarah and I went for a hike on the Limber Grove Trail in Colorado. It starts off, you cross this really scenic footbridge across this rolling stream, and then you turn up and you go through these majestic pines, these aspens, and then you kind of crest and right kind of on the side of the mountain, you hike across this massive amount of rocks. There's rocks small as baseballs, as big as basketballs, all strewn across, going from this kind of middle portion all the way to the top. It's like a quarter mile across these rocks, and there's so many that you can barely even be sure you're still on the path. And then you turn the corner, and there's these grove of trees, the limber grove of trees. And these trees have lived in this jungle of rocks for over a thousand years. These wind-beaten, wind-twisted, gnarled trees sit there and have lived for millennia. Year after year, the winds have howled, shrieked, torn down the mountainside, and the trees, they stand firm. Countless generations of people have lived and died, and the trees have lived on. Well, why? Because they are rooted down deep. So what are your roots sinking into? Are you rooted and grounded in God's love? If being firmly and rooted in God's word, makes us like a tree by streams of water? How much more will we be rooted and firmly grasped if we root ourselves in God himself? With roots in his love, you can face the howling of the winds of culture. You can face the shrieking of the winds of pain and suffering. You can face the onslaught of the winters of cold faith. Keep sinking your roots into God's love and his church for your good and his glory. His love will get you through the darkest times. It's reported that when Napoleon's soldiers opened the prison of the Inquisition, they found an underground dungeon with the remains of a human skeleton chained to the wall. On the wall was carved a cross 
and in Spanish were four words. At the top of the cross, height. On the bottom, depth. And on the arms of the cross, length and breadth. You're in glory, we may get to meet this prisoner who as he sat there in the agonizing hours of starvation, focused on the wonder of God's love in Christ. The wonder of God's love that could get him through literally the darkest of times. Because there was one who had love that was beyond knowledge. So sink your roots into that love, in God's love, and in his church for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you did make us to know love and love others. Lord, we so often get that love, though, distorted off the giver to your good gifts. Oh Lord, forgive us. Help us to see that the love we crave is only found in you. Lord, may we turn from our sins and find our hope and meaning in you. Lord, it is in your Son's name we pray. Amen.